I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. As a foreign correspondent, David Common's reporting has taken him to more than 80 countries, including war zones in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Ukraine. But these days, he's staying a bit closer to home. David has recently taken over hosting duties on CBC Radio's morning show in Toronto, Metro Morning. He's also the co-host of the consumer watchdog show Marketplace on CBC Television. And now that show has its very own podcast. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and today David is here to tell us all about the Marketplace podcast. Plus, we're going to listen to some of his favorite shows. For more than 50 years, Marketplace has been a trusted source for consumers. The show investigates scams, confronts fraudsters, and does extensive product testing. Their producers go undercover posing as clueless customers, and the hidden camera techniques are worthy of a spy movie. So I'm very excited today to be joined by one of the hosts, David Common. David, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you, and that was an incredible intro. It sounds very James Bondy, doesn't it? Well, I didn't write it, but I did take read it. Take the credit. And Other people I will don't take know that. The, I will take the credit. Um, Okay, let's get into Marketplace as a podcast. But I want to back up a bit for people who don't know. What would you describe as the mission of Marketplace? So that has evolved. I mean, you say it's been 50 years. It's basically not the show that it was 50 years ago because we try to be relevant. We try to be talking about what is, you know, the big consumer issue. What is it that you're trying to buy online? Where are people getting scammed? Where are people getting ripped off? What are big companies not telling you? Those are the kinds of things we're trying to be on guard for just the average person and bring you information that sometimes we have to go to extraordinary means. You talk about hidden cameras, for instance, to try to get to the truth of what's going on and hold people accountable. And it's known for actually leading to real change. Mm-hmm. Um, new regulations and laws have been passed as a result. What are some of the times that you felt the show made the biggest impact? Hmm. So there have been many instances of my colleagues over many years, as you say, where policies have been changed. You know, there was one where they showed just how easy it was to get a Health Canada license for like non-medicine medicine, um, uh, these natural products. Uh, They just basically created a fake company and showed how dead simple it was to kind of fake it till you make it. Uh, In terms of things that I've done, you know, we cracked down on some movers who had been repeatedly ripping people off by picking up their stuff after quoting this really low price. Once the truck drove away, they were charging people way more to get like all your life's possessions, your photo albums, all that stuff that, you know, doesn't like you can't put a, a price on, you can't replace. So we were able to confront them. And then after we confronted them, uh, the police rolled in and arrested a whole bunch of them. Not not exactly on the same day, but it says something. Can you tell us how that investigation unfolded and how that really came to be? So most things that Marketplace does comes from some audience member reaching out to us and saying, hey, this happened to me. And sometimes it's multiple people. And so we figured, okay, if these movers are, as they're alleged to be doing, 
ripping people off, quoting low and then charging high. How are we going to figure this out? How are we going to show it real time? And so we moved with them and we recorded the whole process. We put, you know, hidden cameras all over the pickup location. So we have all of that. We recorded all of our phone calls, all of our interactions with them. And um, then they took it away in the moving truck and we had a tracking device in one of our boxes. So we knew exactly where their truck was at all times and not in the places they later claimed it was, including a way station. Because one of their claims was, hey, your stuff, we're going to charge you based on how much it weighs. And we're saying, it, you know, it's, a, it's an amount like this. And I can't remember the exact number, but it was way, way more because we'd gone to a real way station first. And we knew that they were, you know, vastly overcharging us relative to weight. So I want to listen to a clip from the show now. And this episode I really enjoyed. It's about scam calls because we've all experienced them. And what was the story behind this investigation? Okay, so you know these scam calls that people have got for a long time. It's kind of why nobody answers their phone anymore, right? They're, they're claiming to be somebody they aren't, whether it's the CRA or the police, and you're in trouble, and uh, you got to pay this amount of money. But they've become ever more sophisticated, and that means that it's, it, it is easier for them to find victims, um, to, to mask who they really are. And what we were trying to do was, how do we get inside the scam as it's happening? And we worked with basically a hacker who was able to put us electronically inside a scam operation operating overseas and um, with that, able to interrupt scams as they were happening because we knew who the victims were. My colleague, my amazing colleague, Asha Tomlinson, actually explained in the podcast. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a listen. This is Marketplace. Okay, so we mentioned at the start of this conversation that this investigation was different from others you've worked on before. Part of that because you've been on this story for so long. You and Marketplace executive producer Nalisha Villani didn't just learn about phone scams. You got into action yourselves and actually stopped some of the phone scams in the moment. How did your moonlighting as a fraud fighter go? I like the idea of moonlighting. Look, we had met so many victims that you really wanted to do something and not just tell their story. And we got so deep into it that we were working with citizen fraud fighters and intercepting scams as they happened. And I'll tell you, it it has been crazy. We would get alerts from people who knew about scams as they were happening at all hours of the day, letting us know someone was about to lose money. I mean, about to lose it. And then so we would spring into action. Doesn't matter what we were doing. Sometimes it was sleeping in the middle of the night. Sometimes we were on other assignments. And as soon as we get that call, you try to get a hold of the target of the scam to stop them from sending money. Okay, it is uh, 6 a.m. here in Ottawa. Just got an alert that there's a scam in progress. Hi, Nalisha. Hi, David. There's a person on the phone right now who's agreed to pay thousands of dollars. That's ringing. Welcome to the EE voicemail. I'm sorry, but the person you've called is not available. Do you want to just text that person? And we stuck at it. Hello? Hi there. The person you're talking to on the other line is a phone scammer. Okay. He's trying to take your money, but he is not from the government. Thank so, you. Go so ahead. Good. We stopped it. Scam interrupted. Virtual high five. Amazing. 
You know, at Marketplace, we like to say, we've got your back. That's our motto. When you think about you and Alicia, you took that to a whole other level. Of course, every time you got a tip about a scam, there was no way of knowing if you'd even be able to intervene in time. Can we talk more about those tense moments? And let's start with a story about a man named Justin. So this is one of those instances where I was, I was actually out of the country on a different assignment. I was in New Jersey uh, by the water. That was August 2021. And we get this urgent tip that someone was being scammed. So we, we stop everything we're doing and call up this guy, Justin, who's about to become another victim of this phone scam. Justin, my name is David Common. I'm a journalist with CBC. Um, we have reason to believe you've been contacted by scammers out of India. Yeah. This is an intense moment because time is not on our side. The scam is in progress while we're on the phone. So we have to convince him, the victim, that we're the good guys or he's going to lose money. So after some back and forth, we do get him to admit that he's received the call. They said there was a Trojan that my computer, they did log on remotely. Justin, I, w I want to stop you here. This is the this is the tech support scam. Call Visa and stop it. Okay, I will right away. Moments later, we got a call back from Justin. Thank you very much. I put a stop to my Visa. Excellent. They're really good at this. Yeah, that sounds very legit. And I am skeptical. I've been a police sergeant for uh, thirty years. Oh boy. Oh boy is right. <laughs> uh, these criminals are highly sophisticated. Anyone could fall victim to this. Yeah, anyone can fall for these scams now. And Alicia, she had some wild moments too. She rushed to save an elderly woman in Sudbury from being defrauded. Mm -hmm. Lorraine was her name and Alicia got to her just in time. I am a journalist from CBC. I'm calling because I believe you may be on the phone or have been recently with someone alleging you owe thousands of dollars. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to call and let you know that that is a scam and the person you've been speaking with is a phone scammer. And I just want to make sure that you're not going to pay them any money. So I'll just disregard them then. Okay, thank you very much. What a feel-good ending. And months later, in January 2022, we met up with Lorraine in Sudbury, Ontario. What did she say? Yeah, I was up in Sudbury on another assignment, and um, Lorraine uh, said to me that the scammers said she's overpaid one of her bills and that they were going to reimburse her. He said something about, I had overpaid something. I said, well, how could I pay? I know I paid my bill, but I paid what it was. And he said, no, there's $140 that comes to you. It's a very tricky type of scam. That's, of course, when Alicia called and told her, just shut down your computer. But that's not all. At the time, Lorraine thought what the scammers were trying to do was take $1,000 from her. But what they were actually trying to take is way more. You think they were trying to take $1,000 from you? Yeah. Which is a lot of money. Well, yeah. But here's the thing. Because we could see inside the scamming operation... We know what they were trying to get from you. $38,000. Oh. Well, if you could have went to my bank account. Yeah. So thankful for an Alicia. Like, every day I say thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
That was a clip from the CBC Marketplace podcast. It's hosted by Asha Tomlinson and David Common. Their team includes Shiloh Fagan, Shannon Higgins, Nalisha Villani, Sam McNulty, and Lauda Antonelli. So, David, what was it like for you to try to interrupt those scam calls while they were happening? We've met so many of the victims um, of this and how transfer, you know, even if you lose $1,000, if $1,000 is all you have, that is a massive loss. And these are very often people who are marginalized. They may be losing basically everything. And so the opportunity to stop people who never think they're going to get caught, these scammers, and stop them from taking advantage of some of our society's most vulnerable was, I mean, some of the most rewarding stuff of my career to I bet. make it happen. Um, yeah, the the woman in that clip, you know, she just sounded like everyone's grandma. Like, I was just like, oh, God, I'm so glad that that this didn't happen. And so you're able to save these few people from being defrauded, but there, as we know, so many more scammers out there. What would it take to even end scam calls for good? And, or do you even think that's possible at this point? Well, you know, there's always gonna be scams of some kind. There always have been, and there's always going to be. So who do we need to protect? You know, it's uh, our parents and grandparents. It's people who might be marginalized or vulnerable, people with dementia, um, people who have certain challenges within their life, new Canadians, um, people who've recently emigrated to the country. We need to tell them, we need to, ensure that there is prevention in that sense. And there needs to be some enforcement. And that involves Canadian authorities cooperating with authorities overseas, which is always a challenge, and making a real dent in these operations. I know you're here to talk about the Marketplace podcast, but I can't not ask you about Metro Morning, too. Um, congratulations. We're, we're recording this during your first week on the air here in Toronto. How's it going so far? When, when does one sleep? When does that happen? I was I was curious about that. Yeah. No, all in all seriousness, uh, I have uh, worked mornings before and I've backfill hosted um, this Toronto morning show program um, before, but this is now my permanent job and I'm very excited about it. There's there's lots of work and lots of adventure and a great mighty little team. Um, and just uh, you know, it's a good opportunity for me to try something. The challenge for me will be sitting still because I've spent an awful lot of my career on the road. And so uh, we'll see. My kids will be like, who are you? Why are you here all the time? <laughs> well, since you're staying now with Metro Morning, are we going to hear and see you on Marketplace still? Or? You will. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. great. You'll see me on the on the, the uh, television program itself, which, of course, also streams on, on CBC Gem, on YouTube, and all sorts of places. Um, and fingers crossed our plan is to do another Marketplace podcast season. Okay, I want to switch gears now and talk about your podcast picks. I was very fascinated to to go through these, and I know you're a big listener. So, so what do you look for in a podcast, like in a new podcast when you're looking? Well, I, I think I'm like a lot of people where I want a buffet. I don't just want silly stuff. I don't just want smart stuff. I want kind of all of it. Um, and sometimes I'm just looking to fill gaps in my own understanding, and that may be telling me something about a place or a thing I didn't know about before or helping me meet people who have a very different life um, 
and I can I can learn from those people. And then sometimes it's just like straight diversion, right? I just want silliness. I like and, a lot of those. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, all good. Uh, so your first pick is actually a show that I'm very familiar with because I also host that show, which is The Secret Life of Canada. So how did you how did you find out about us? Okay. Uh, I believe I am right in saying Secret Life existed before it was a CBC, and that is where I discovered it. Oh, wow. I discovered it in the pre-CBC, and so I was super excited when it came into that CBC fold. Um, and it really speaks to exactly what I was saying before. It told me history in a really exciting, fun way um, that was history that I wasn't hearing about otherwise. And uh, so it was a real thrill. I mean, seriously, it's um, Thank it's you. a Thank I, I you. Know, we've never met before. We haven't. And so this is. Thank you. Thank you. This is cool. And, yeah. you know, uh, and this is not just a plant. It's not just I knew you were going to be here and I picked your thing. I, I believe I do yeah. believe you. It, the funny thing is, is when I was looking at our script today, because I, I know which podcast you pick, my producer actually blacked out this oh. segment. So I was like. What could be under there except my show? Oh, that's, what, yes. that's what I thought. I was that's like, true. I think I figured it out. But I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored. That means a lot coming from you, and I really, I really appreciate it. Um, so I wanna, I wanna throw to a clip now, and we're actually gonna listen uh, to a bit of our our mini episode about bread and cheese day. Yes. Yeah. So my co-host, for people who don't know, Phelan, she is Mohawk and Tuscarora, and every Victoria Day in her community of Six Nations, everyone lines up to get a big slice of bread and a hunk of cheese. She loves the holiday, obviously, but wanted to find out why the tradition exists in the first place. Did you know? Had you ever heard of this? Um, no. I'd I never had never heard, of, it heard of this. No. Yeah. No. Um, and that's exactly it. It's the like the little bits of history that either you weren't exposed to or that were suppressed that you need to know. Yeah, that's right. I remember last season she said, I want to do something on bread and cheese. And I was like, I mean, yeah, it's universal. I don't feel like it's a thing that people don't know about. <laughs> and then she explained what it is. So uh, let's listen to a clip now. The first folks who showed up in our territory were the Dutch. And once more and more of them began showing up, it became clear that an agreement needed to be put in place. Neither party spoke the same language, so negotiations were a lengthy process. The agreement that came out of these talks was the two-row wampum belt, or the Gaswenta. Okay, yeah, and I know we've spoken about this before on the show, um, I think in our episode about the Indian Act. So if I remember correctly, tell me if I'm wrong, the belt is a white belt with two rows of purple beads. And it, it's not like a belt you would wear, but it's more like a, a, a document, a living document yeah. in a way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was meant to signify how Haudenosaunee and settler relationships should function. I, I think in the simplest terms, it's kind of a stay in your lane and I'll stay in mine agreement. Gotcha. So while we had the two-row wampum to document the agreement, the Dutch used paper, and they attached three silver chains to that paper document. These chains were made of silver because other metals, like iron, can rust and break. But silver can be polished. The relationship can be renewed. When the Dutch lost the war, the British became the dominant settler power, and they took up the two-row wampum agreement. The Haudenosaunee were recognized as important allies both for battle and for trade relationships. Uh, this agreement between the British and the Haudenosaunee would continue to develop and be renewed. When the American Revolution broke out, the Haudenosaunee had a choice to make. 
to fight alongside the British or the Americans. Those options are both bad. Well, and not everyone agreed on whose side to fight on. Some wanted neither. But many Haudenosaunee felt that, you know, they had dealings with the Crown and promises had been made about remaining in our territories undisturbed. So the choice for many was to fight alongside the British. Right. A devil, you know, kind of situation. Yeah, I guess. But when the British lost the war, that meant we did too. This was a really dark time. We were burned out of our homelands and sent to live in southern Ontario and given 950,000 acres to live on. This is the Haldeman Tract, where many of us live today, except now we only hold about 5% of our original landmass. Damn. Yeah. After the American Revolution, there is more and more fighting. And in 1764, after the conquest of New France, when the French had to surrender their land to the British, British authorities and Indigenous dignitaries met at Fort Niagara. This was a time to renew the relationship and, again, to polish the chain but also to invite other Indigenous nations into the agreement, into treaty. So it is here that around 24 other Indigenous nations entered into the agreement under the Silver Covenant Chain Wampum Belt. And what did this belt look like? Well, it's really beautiful. You can see the date, 1764, on it, and there are two figures, one representing the Crown and the other First Nations allies, and they are linking hands. Okay, so the two-row wampum and the silver covenant are different agreements, but they sound sort of related somehow. Yeah, they are. Um, And the silver covenant chain has a long history that I can't get into today, but the sentiment around renewal of relationship is what's important here. It's about mutual respect and reciprocity. The concept of polishing the chain, renewing the relationship, is something that runs through both agreements. It was a time to discuss issues or disagreements that had come up and resolve them. It was a nation-to-nation agreement that bonded us. But little did the Haudenosaunee know how quickly they would be called upon to fight once again for the British. So when the War of 1812 broke out, the Haudenosaunee of Six Nations were requested to fight. And once again, we did, holding true to our agreements, holding true to our word. But, you know, and without our help and the help of other Indigenous nations, Britain most likely would have lost the war. And this podcast would be called Secret Life of America, (laughs) which we might do, everyone. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. (laughs) In the mid-1800s, Queen Victoria sits on the throne. Not the toilet. (laughs) Oh, wow. Is this where we are? Season four already? Just Season five. Oh, is it season five? (laughs) Oh, my God. Feels like season forty-seven, but yep. like okay, sorry, continue. Okay, so, so she so she she gets on the throne. Yeah. She gets on the throne, which and is the a crown. chair, a royal chair. <laughs> yes, a royal chair, uh, and and the crown well remembers the agreements that were made between the Haudenosaunee and the British. I put a call out on Facebook asking my community about the history of bread and cheese. And John Moses, you might remember him from our episode on the Indian Pavilion at Expo 67. John pointed me towards a really amazing document detailing a visit from the governor general and his wife. This is Lord and Lady Dufferin. So this is from 1874. Um, And to me, it really highlights the relationship between the Crown and the Haudenosaunee. This is some of what Chief Jacob General said. The chief reminded His Excellency that when British supremacy on this continent was in peril, their Indian forefathers shed brooks of blood on behalf of the English nation. And 
if the services of the Six Nations were ever requested again in defense of the British flag, they would be willing to risk their lives as their forefathers had done. Wow, brooks of blood. That's really evocative. Yeah, no mincing words there. Um, Leah, could you read this section from Lord Dufferin's speech? Oh, man, why do you always give me these old British dudes' speeches? <laughs> do whatever accent you why want. Why don't I get the cool chief with the... Okay, I will do it. Lord Dufferin. I'm well aware that in ancient times, when there was a war between the early French colonizers of Canada and the early English colonists of the neighboring states, differences which I'm glad to say have long since been buried in oblivion by both parties, it was on the brave of the arms and on the faithful courage of your ancestors that the crown of England then relied. The memory of these transactions, I can assure you, shall never be allowed to pass away. So I love this so much. Um, <laughs> it's so nice to hear this coming from a crown representative, a representative of the queen. This is from a letter sent to the governor general after his visit to Six Nations. The Six Nations have always been assured of and enjoyed care and protection under Her Majesty's government, thus maintaining an unbroken alliance and which continued good faith with all perpetuate as conveyed in their ancient wampum treaty, the silver chain which does not tarnish. The Six Nations trust that they will be permitted to address Your Excellency at any time, should it be necessary. Signed, this 21st day of August in the year 1872. We haven't forgotten that chain and what it means. There is one final thing in this doc, uh, and it has a really cool detail regarding the activities when the Governor General came to visit. In addition to the luncheon in Styers Hall, 1,000 loaves of bread, 600 pounds of cheese, and eight boxes of biscuits were distributed. Okay, here we go. This is why also it's not called bread, cheese, and biscuits, because they really, <laughs> like eight boxes of biscuits as opposed to a thousand loaves of bread. Anyway, so this is where That's it comes really from. That's really funny because when I talked to John about it, he was like, somebody owes us some biscuits. <laughs> 6,000 you know, pounds of cheese and eight boxes of biscuits? How dare yeah. you? <laughs> well, a lot of people say that bread and cheese actually goes back further than this. Um, and when Queen Victoria died, the practice of bread and cheese stopped for a while, but it was picked up again with the community paying for, for the bread and cheese out of our own funds. So the crown doesn't even pay for it anymore after, I'm sorry, brooks of blood? They just yeah. cut it off? No. Yeah, they cut it off. Between 1860 and 1919, there were 14 royal visits to Six Nations. But these days we don't hear much from our old allies. So while bread and cheese might sound like a fun light thing, and don't get me wrong, it is, but when you look a little bit deeper, when you really think about what this tradition is, it's a remembering, because it's easy for the crown to forget us, but we won't forget them. From CBC Podcast, that was The Secret Life of Canada. It's hosted and produced by me, Leah Simone Bowen, and Phelan Johnson, and our team includes Graham McDonald, Roshni Nair, Andrea Eidinger, and Yvette Nolan. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. 
Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This next clip is from the podcast Wind of Change. What's the show about? Okay, this was classic Peel the Onion, but it starts with this mystery, and that is that the song, many people will know it, Wind of Change by the Scorpions, maybe wasn't written by the Scorpions, but was written by, of all people, the Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah. And why would they do that? It was when the Berlin Wall had not yet fallen, the Soviet Union was still a thing, the Cold War was still a thing, and the idea was trying to plant music that would spur on change. And did it work? That's the mystery. Okay, so uh, let's listen to a bit of it now. Wind of Change is hosted by Patrick Radden Keefe, and to find out whether the CIA could have secretly written a hit song, Patrick set out to learn more about how the agency has worked with pop culture in the past. That led him to a conversation with a retired CIA disguise expert named Jonna Mendez. Let's listen. When Jonna talks about her career, you can feel this tension between the pride she clearly feels and her desire to share these wild stories on the one hand, and her sense that she still needs to police what she says on the other. I went to, um, this is off the record. Sure. Now we're back on the record. <laughs> I, was, I was called up there from uh, where I was living, which was off the record. Back on the record. And it was an emergency, and I went up with my boss, and my boss said, this is a photo operation, bring your cameras. So I did. And I got up there, and my boss was an idiot. Keep that on the record. <laughs> he just died. That's off the record. <laughs> she let us keep that last part. Eventually, she ended up working with her husband, Tony, and specializing in disguise. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to get the document and bring Anna Kurkowska to safety. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. That's the old TV show Mission Impossible, which premiered in 1966 and eventually spawned the Tom Cruise movies. One of the show's signatures was that the spies would often disguise themselves in these ingenious, hyper-realistic latex masks. It was always a big showstopper moment when they peeled the mask off like a second skin. The show aired Sunday nights on CBS, and everybody watched it, including the CIA. And then we get phone calls from their own officers saying, I just saw this thing on Mission Impossible, and I'm wondering, have we tried that? Can we do that? And this was how Tony Mendez became friends with the Hollywood makeup artist, John Chambers. You can't build cover stories around a movie that doesn't exist. You need a producer. That's John Goodman playing Chambers in Argo. He was kind of the old man of Hollywood. He did Planet of the Apes, right? Planet of the Apes was when he really made his mark. He has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Tony said that he was one of the few geniuses he thought that he ever met was John Chambers. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the idea of somebody who's out there and exists in Hollywood and they have a career and they're doing what they do 
And then at a certain point, they get tapped on the shoulder by somebody who says, hey, could you help us out? But I just wonder if there's anything you know or any insight you can shed into that and like what those relationships would look like. Because this is not a this is not an agent on foreign soil. No, he's here in the U.S., but he's helping out. It sounds like for years and years. We'd say you have you have some skills that we're very interested in and we'd like to know if you'd like to help your government and work with us. And clearly he said yes. And the next step would be that our contracts people would go out and present him with a classified contract. Chambers couldn't tell people, and we certainly couldn't tell people, that John Chambers was working for us. Right. So you have this understanding. You have this classified relationship for years. In Hollywood, Chambers had hours to make up an actor. But the agency's needs were different. What we needed was something, basically, that you could put on in a parked car in a dark garage. And that you could step out the door and you knew that it was perfect. For years, Chambers and Tony worked closely together. Sometimes Tony would go hang around film sets in L.A., and Chambers would introduce him around, saying he was an old army buddy. Most of this, this extreme stuff, we did for Moscow because Moscow was so difficult for us to work there. We didn't need masks in, I don't want to name a country, it'll offend them. In Western Europe, we didn't need I love that they would be offended by you saying that you didn't need masks there. <laughs> what a burn. <laughs> Western Europe wasn't just smothering us with surveillance. Surveillance was there. Moscow was smothering us. With Chambers' help, the CIA got so good at making masks that when George H.W. Bush was president, Jonna once went to the Oval Office to brief him while completely disguised in a mask. Before his time in the White House, Bush had done a stint as director of Central Intelligence. That's why it was so much fun. I had pictures of him in disguise that I brought. I said, I'm the new chief of disguise, and you might remember yourself in this wig, and, you know, this is what we were doing. When did he wear disguises? When he was head of CIA for some meetings that he had overseas. Ah. Yeah. So, so you, were, you reminded him. I did. I said, well, we've improved. We're a little better than we used to be. And I'm here to show you the latest disguise. He said, where is it? I said, I'm wearing it. So I did the Tom Cruise thing. You peeled the latex off? And I'm holding it in the air. And he's, he's loving it. And the White House photographer. Is there a wig too? Yeah. So it's a, whole, it's a face and a wig? Yeah. So you're holding up. It looks like you've just beheaded yourself, basically. It does. It does. A White House photographer captured the moment. But when Jonna wanted a copy of the picture, they couldn't give her one. It took her 10 years to get that photo. The mask technology was so cutting edge, even a snapshot of it was classified. And I would imagine the state of the art has improved to a point where it's, it's okay that the picture's out there. I don't know where it's at. What I know is that they are allowing me to talk about masks. All the years I've been gone, I never have talked about masks. Oh, wow. Until the, last, they... the last two years. So something changed. Something changed. But you don't know what? I know that they're not doing exactly what I was talking about because they wouldn't let me talk about it if they were. So is that a good rule of thumb, that, that one reason why you would prevent people from talking about things, even if they happened decades ago, is that some aspect of it might still be in play? It's called sources and methods, and you protect them. Sources and methods, the two big categories that the CIA always keeps classified. You know, the story of Argo was George Tenet's idea. Tenet was CIA director when the story was declassified. To put out one good story, just one. 
He said, all they ever hear about are the things that go wrong. And it's true. Those are the interesting stories, and they're the ones that find their way into the headlines. But nobody ever publishes a story that's just a good news story. Like, look what we did. So George Tenet said, let's tell them one. That started with the director Absolutely. of the CIA. Absolutely. That was George Tenet. And my husband, Tony Mendez, initially said, no. Why? Tony was never going to tell that story. It's classified, sir. Tenet said, not anymore. It's not. When you put it like that, it makes me think, are there a hundred other stories like Argo that we just don't know about? There are other stories that the American public would, would love to know. But there is no need for them to know them. It wasn't just makeup artists Shauna got to know. She sought out magicians, too. If professional illusionists could devise a way to trick the human eye and make a person disappear, well, in Cold War Moscow, a city crawling with KGB surveillance, that was the sort of skill that the CIA wanted to learn. Wild. That was a clip from the podcast, Wind of Change. It's a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. The host is Patrick Radden-Keefe. Their team includes Henry Milofsky, Natalie Brennan, Ben Phelan, and Joel Lovell. Okay, so your next pick is called Yo, Is This Racist? It is hosted by Tawny Newsom and Andrew T. And they basically... You know, every episode, take questions from listeners about whether something they experienced is racist. So so what made you want to listen to this show? The title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it is a good title. Yeah, right? it is a good title. So much is about title and the tile art, right? The thing that brings you into these podcasts. That's interesting. I haven't heard anyone say that. Really? That they've been brought in by tile art. No. I think that is important because I think it communicates tone. I think it communicates a lot about what it, what it is. Obviously, title is really important. So... Um, I started listening to this when it really was starting to be starting to be a podcast. And the episodes are longer than I typically listen to. I do like those more bite-sized podcasts, like 30-ish yeah. minutes. Yeah. Um, and this goes on longer than that. It, it's one of those ones where there's like a longer preamble. And if you're into the people, you can listen to it. If you're not, you can skip, you can skip, skip ahead forward. to yeah. the... But it's... It's interesting because there are instances where there's no subjectivity about it. Like it's, it is just straight up racist, Mm -hmm. but they unpack some things that are, it's not just a yes, no, Mm -hmm. you're, they inhabit the worlds of gray. You see the nuance, you see the struggle and you don't necessarily see bad people on both sides of the the equation. You see ignorance. Mm-hmm. And um, I can sometimes see myself in those situations. And so it was about trying to understand, I don't know, the, I guess the perspective of not me mm-hmm. trying to better myself through hearing other people's interpretations of things. Yeah, and, and Tawny Newsom and her co-host Andrew T they're really funny yes. as well like yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they're oh, hilarious it's, it's not yeah it, it is a funny and, yeah. and tons of it it's just go 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 yeah yeah so it, it is it's like a nice little joy ride um this this clip we're about to hear is from a question from a listener and this caller that called in had a bit of an unusual experience hi Andrew Tawny Kevin and any guests 
my name is Erin, and I'm from Chicago. I am white passing, but my dad is Mexican, my mom is white. I was inspired by a recent call related to Cinco de Mayo to share my experience with Cinco de Mayo. Um, I live on the north side, I work from home, and I was walking my chihuahua on my lunch break when this dude who was white, probably well-intentioned, leaned down as he passed us and said loudly, Happy Cinco de Mayo, <laughs> seemingly to my dog. Again, seemed well-intentioned. Maybe he thought it was cute. He was smiling. But I got to ask, is this racist? I think I already know, but thought you might get a kick out of it as far as these things go. I don't know. Thanks. Love ya. I'm sorry. I just, I love, first of all, just someone wishing any holiday only to the dog. Yes. <laughs> like bending down like, happy Easter, and then just walking past the human. <laughs> it's very funny. Oh, God. But did he do it to the dog because the dog's a chihuahua? I, and... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you as a person who has a chihuahua, yes. <laughs> and... Is the caller mad because she's white passing and she wanted a Cinco de Mayo wish as well? <laughs> is she like, this man only thinks my dog is Mexican and that's rude to my heritage? <laughs> I know that's not what she wants. I'm just, this is... I guess no one wants that. Is there a Chicago element to... I assume yes. um, <laughs> all the holidays that have taken on in America for white Americans, mm -hmm. a drinking component are extra mm -hmm. big in Chicago. That's mm -hmm. my, yes. That's my guess. That's guess number yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there is um, a, a large Mexican American population and Mexican population in Chicago. Oh, it's true. Very, very large. Yep. There's a world where this guy's making a Facebook post about St. Patrick's day being a national holiday that like his company <laughs> should honor and take yeah. the day off for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because I gotta get down to the river on time to see them dye it green. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that when I have to go to work? Yeah. So Chicago loves a drinking holiday. Yeah. Yeah. I just I... is it is it racist to do something to a dog just in general? <laughs> I I mean it's the like Chihuahuas are Mexican. Kevin trope really liked that one. Is yeah. always winds up being something <laughs> up. I guess. Yeah. It's that like. Taco Bell ad ass like <laughs> take on Chihuahuas and yeah. Mexican stereotypes would sure. be my guess. Mm -hmm. I also just yeah, well, wishing a dog a happy anything and not wishing the human very mm -hmm. fun. Ten out of ten. Bit. <laughs> Remove the yes. racial element of this, and yes. everyone should do that. Just that part is yeah. good. The dog thing. People, dogs are where people's very casual uh, racism is very, very evident. Like, you know, they love naming like a Shih Tzu wonton or whatever. And it's like, sure. get the, get the f out of here. So that's Yeah, unless that's you're going to my... name your Rhodesian Ridgeback. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have a joke for it. I just wanted here's, to say Rhodesia. Here's Honky. Here's Honky, my Rhodesian, my Rhodesian yeah. Ridgeback. Here's Elon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, only otherwise. tell dogs like happy holidays, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Happy yeah. birthday. Mm -hmm. Where's a Bernese 
where's Bert? Where's Berna? A Bernese <laughs> mountain dog? Is that is that Germany or something? I don't know. Yeah. Do you wish that dog a happy Oktoberfest? <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to think of like I feel like a it Chihuahua. is from Bern. It is from the Swiss Alps. <laughs> oh, from Switzerland. I've been to Bern. Apparently. Uh, are those well, are bring... Bernese mountain dogs the ones that have the, the little brandy barrel? That is a stereotype, Andrew. Those dogs don't carry liquor around anymore. Oh. They did, did they that ever? in the Alps. They did that in the Alps because if they it was a rescue thing. If they would encounter like <laughs> hikers that were lost or needed a warm up, they had like whiskey in their little collars. How does that help? Barrels. It warms you up. Who getting less lost once they had a little <laughs> bit of whiskey? <laughs> Apparently a lot of people. It was a common practice. Maybe it loosens you up to just like chill out and use your compass, right? And get back to where you're trying to go. That's right. North-ish. Good enough. Let's go. Oh, there's a call back to our other show if you guys want it. What, okay, wait, wait. I brought up the Bernese Mountain Dog thing as a joke, but I am like, it. it is wild that like there's only some dogs that we so hardcore associate with ethnicities. Sure. And then other dogs, even though every dog is named after a place it was originally created or whatever. Yeah. There's some dogs that were just like chihuahuas are Mexican, which is so weird. Yeah. And yeah. yeah and, and does make this man weird for wishing that dog a, a happy Cinco de Mayo. Now you wish that dog a happy St. Patrick's day. I'm on board. Oh yeah. my God. A little green hat on a chihuahua. Ah! From Suboptimal Pods, that was Yo! Is This Racist? It's hosted by Tawny Newsom and Andrew T., and it's produced by Kevin Bartelt. The next podcast on your list is called War on the Rocks. It's about war and conflict. What sets it apart from other podcasts that cover war? So, you know, I have held various different roles uh, as a journalist and have covered war and conflict. And when you're covering them, you try to drink up information as much as you can to just try to understand what's going on. And that was partly what I was doing with um, War on the Rocks, that it is hosted by a guy who covers war and knows a lot about Russia and had very good insights into sort of not just the day-to-day what was happening, but the broader strategy. And it really just helped me keep up to date. It became pretty definitive, and you could generate other ideas from it. It was generally pretty quick listening. It was strategy. And then I would have to move on to something. Later. Yeah. But it's informative. Yeah. It gave that context. Okay, so... Let's listen to a bit now. We're going to hear a conversation between the host, Ryan Evans, and the two heads of NATO Air Command, General James Hecker of the U.S. Air Force and Air Marshal Johnny Stringer of the Royal Air Force. This conversation took place about a year and a half into the war. There's a lot one can learn from Ukraine, and you alluded to this earlier in terms of it's sort of when you look back and decide to learn the lessons. As three months into the war, some of the lessons look very different from a year into the war to now. Uh, what are those major changes, at least phases from the war that you think, from the perspective of air power and space power that you two have observed since February 2022? The biggest l- lesson learned that I think really the world has gotten out of this 
is what happens if you can't get air superiority? And I think what we've seen on both sides is neither one was able to get air superiority. And just for your listeners, you know, if Russia was able to get air superiority, which they obviously thought they were going to be able to do, it probably would have been a three or a 10 day war. All the equipment that the 45 nations has offered Ukraine and trucked in would never have gotten there if Russia had air superiority. Now, the reason why they weren't able to get air superiority is because of both sides had very good uh, integrated air and missile defense systems. Yeah, as, as the com was saying, both sides uh, went into this with, on paper, some very impressive um, capabilities. What I think we've seen from Russians is uh, at the enterprise level, they really hadn't modernized beyond platforms. And so you, you were looking at a force that was not joined, that was not prepped to operate in a way that certainly we in the West would, would force package and use capability across all domains. Uh, and so actually they ended up having something that, that was less than the sum of all of its parts. I think you also find from the Ukrainians, and very interesting to see what their chief of defense has said recently on how maintaining access and seeking to deny access to the level that the Russians wanted to the air domain was one of the priorities for both Ukrainian strategy and Ukrainian operational design as well. And I think they've done a fantastic job in, in achieving that. They've clearly had very welcome support from a number of nations that, that has kept their air defenses in the fight. But it has allowed them to contest in a way that I think the Russians did not expect and have found hard to adjust to over the 16 months of the conflict. I think it also, if I sort of broaden it a bit, I think it poses some really interesting questions for uh, notions of air superiority and air supremacy. I think at times people might have been guilty in the past of seeing it in quite sort of black and white terms, sort of either or. And I think what we are seeing in Ukraine is a sense actually of air access. What do you need to have and where do you need it and at what level? Uh, and that's going to be episodic. It's going to be time bound. But if you use it well, it really poses your adversary problems. Uh, and I think there's been great imagination on that front by the Ukrainians as well. Is it fair to call what the Ukrainians had, certainly in the first few months of the war, an integrated air defense system? Or was it more of a disintegrated system that they were able to knit together all these different systems that at least at the beginning weren't talking to each other necessarily? I think it was a little bit of both. They were talking together a little bit, but not nearly to the, uh, to the extent that they're talking together right now. They have a very, very sophisticated, robust, resilient integrated air and missile defense system, as does Russia. So what you're seeing is uh, Russia can't fly their airplanes deep into Ukraine because they get shot down, and they've shot down several. And likewise, uh, Ukraine can't fly theirs uh, into Russia because of that same reason. Because of that, what we're seeing now is, you know, 155-millimeter rounds going back and forth at one another as we started equipping Ukraine a little bit more. They got HIMARS, which now gives them a little bit more range and definitely more accuracy. Uh, and then we've uh, given them uh, harm missiles as well as some, some different types of uh, bombs that are very accurate and those kind of things. So they're getting more capability. But as they're going back and forth with these artillery rounds, it just destroys a country. 
It doesn't matter if it's a school building, if it's a hospital or whatever. They're pretty ambiguous, at least on the Russian side, on what they're targeting. And there's mass casualties when you fight a war like this. That's why for us, it is so important that we get air superiority so we don't have to fight the fight that they're fighting right now because the Western world won't put up with those casualties and we don't want to just destroy a country. From Metamorphic Media, that was a clip from the podcast War on the Rocks. It's hosted and created by Ryan Evans. Okay, David, we're at the end of the show. I'm sad, but um, before we let you go, what's next for the Marketplace podcast? You said there's going to be a season two. Do you know what maybe that will entail yet? There are... Oh, I'm going to have to be James Bondy okay, all secretly okay. on this. and it's. Uh, but there are a number of things. I'll tell you one of them is um, do your tech repair companies, mm-hmm. do they spy on your stuff when you take your devices in? And um, my colleague Asha Tomlinson has got a real whiz-banger on that. All right. So there's that. We have another one on uh, like just being prepared for the many more disasters that we're facing in this country. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it. I already am a person who wants to just like unplug from the grid and go live out in the in the woods. So I feel like that's, that's what, these stories are going to progress that. But I can't wait to hear them. David Common, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. David Common is the co-host of the CBC television show Marketplace and now the podcast, too. He's also the new host of Metro Morning on CBC Radio in Toronto. You can find all eight episodes of the Marketplace podcast now in the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can stream the Marketplace TV show for free on CBC Gem. David picked everything we played today, so if you want more info or links to anything on that list, head to cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva with technical support from Emily Caravazio. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Happy listening. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.